welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hi, it's Lindsay, and this week I'm talking to author, journalist and podcaster Emma Gannon. Emma's career has flourished in the digital world. As an early adopter of blogging, her success online has led to book deals, newspaper columns and a podcast, Control-Alt-Delete, that has been downloaded nearly 8 million times. Her non-fiction works include The Multi-Hyphen Method, empowering individuals to seize their potential by designing a career that works for them and Sabotage, helping people quash imposter syndrome and get out of their own way. Earlier this year, Emma turned her attention to fiction and the resulting novel, Olive, has sold 10,000 copies since its release in July. She is living embodiment of a flourishing multi-hyphenate career. Emma, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. And we have a lot to talk about, so many books to talk about, which is great. I'm really looking forward to hearing what you've chosen for us. But also your work, I feel, has become really influential to people, particularly at this time. So let's jump in and go for it. People would have heard me mention in the introduction the phrase multi-hyphen and having a multi-hyphenate career. For anyone who isn't familiar with that term, can you explain a little bit about what that is? Yes, definitely. I'm loving that the multi-hyphenate word is feeling a bit more familiar now. I wrote the book, I think almost three years ago now, when I'd first gone freelance. And I felt like being a freelancer wasn't really summing up what I was trying to do with my career. I really wanted to be, and still am, a jack of all trades, really. I, I think I am doing it under the storytelling umbrella, but I really wanted to get a bit of a free pass to basically dip my toe into multiple things. So multi-hyphenate really is just uh, me rebranding, being a jack of all trades, really, and trying to take the stigma out of it and giving people a bit of a manifesto to say it's OK to do more than one thing. I read it a couple of years ago and it was really useful to me because I am a freelancer. So although I do work in the shop as a bookseller, I've got quite a few other income streams as well. And so I kind of read it and was like, this is me, (laughs) which is really nice. But I feel like now that we're in lockdown as well and people's work lifestyles have changed so radically this year from doing that working from home so much more that the book has really come back into its own again. Yeah, I've definitely seen it popping up more, which is really interesting. I really didn't want to plug it at all during this time myself, just because I felt like this is such an awful time for so many people. It feels a bit crass to be like, oh, look, um, a great opportunity to talk about my work. I just felt like it wasn't appropriate. But organically, people have been talking to me more about it or wanting to talk about it, which I feel is slightly different. But I'm just really glad that 
I wrote it actually and I felt not insecure about it when I first wrote it but I didn't have that confidence I was only 27 28 when I wrote it and I'd only just become a multi-hyphenate so now I'm like years into it I really believe it I really feel that you can thrive with multiple income streams I feel like there's a bit of a feminist agenda to wanting to have different income streams and being financially savvy but also the fact that it was such a myth in the first place that the nine to five traditional job was safe. I feel like we've seen this year that it really isn't. And being a freelancer, of course, is not completely safe either. But I feel like now people are ready to have the conversation and say, actually, maybe I could be a multi-hyphenate. Maybe I could do three days here, two days there. Or maybe I want a side job outside of my full-time job. I just... I really love the conversations that come off the back of it. Yeah, and it's so true in this time as well that I've had a couple of the income streams that I have have gone quiet. One of the roles that I do involves working in a theatre, and obviously that's not happening at the moment. And if that had been my only job, I'd obviously been in a really tough situation, and, and obviously a lot of people are. I've been really lucky that I've then had these alternative income streams have been able to just have something else going on that I've been really grateful for and I think previously again we have this big mindset that it can often just be one job isn't it one career one job that's the norm and it's nine to five and actually going no actually we can do all these different things and it's just breaking down some of the labels that have been long associated with work yeah definitely and I think there was pushback when it first came out because I was really championing flexible working, working from home. And I've got to say, I really didn't write the book for everyone. I am a real firm believer in writing what you know and writing it for the people that might want to read it. And as you know, sometimes you go into a bookshop and you kind of know what you're looking for. And this book was really meant to be for people that were already multi-hyphenates or or were interested and they would see my book and go, oh my God, that's definitely something I want to read. But what happens when you bring a book out is suddenly you have to be everything to everyone. And so I just found it quite interesting that people were quizzing me on it and saying, well, I don't want to do that. And I'm like, well, you don't have to. (laughs) But the book is there if you're intrigued. Yeah, definitely. And and I'm not a big reader of nonfiction. And I picked it up in a bookshop and was like, this looks really interesting. And like you say, different books will just come to you at different times, sometimes without you even knowing that you need them. And then you have that connection with them. So I'm really grateful for it. And it's really helped my working lifestyle and having that confidence in yeah, being a bit of a jack of all trades and having all sorts of things going on. Oh, thank you. So I'd love to go back to your childhood and hear about the first book that you've picked for us. What is the childhood book that you really remember reading and and absolutely loving? So I love this question because I don't think this is necessarily the first book I ever read, but it's just the book that I remember really, really vividly reading. And I'm so gutted, actually, that I don't have the first copy of it. So it was Matilda and it was the pale yellow cover which sadly isn't anywhere to be found. And I don't think I can spend hundreds of pounds on one from eBay. That would be insane. But it's the, yeah, the first edition of the book. And I looked back and actually it came out in 1988 and I was born in 1989. And I think it won the Children's Book Award in 1989. So it just feels really special because the book came out around the time I was born. Obviously, I discovered it 10 years later. And I got sent a really lovely copy of the book recently, actually, because Matilda turned 30, or at least the book turned 30. And it was the same year I turned 30. 
So it's just kind of a bit of a special one to me. And I love the book. I love the film. And I actually interviewed Mara Wilson, who played Matilda for my podcast. So yeah, it's just a really special book to me. It's a firm favourite. I think it wins a lot of the what's your favourite Roald Dahl. Matilda is top three of the Roald Dahl books, isn't she? Yeah. And I wondered if this was a bit of a cliche answer to the question, but I'm really not one of those people that tries to be different with my answers. I'm like, I'm just going to tell the truth. It was Matilda. But I think it is a very millennial woman thing to say that we bonded with her. And it's the classic seeing yourself in that younger character who maybe was obsessed with books, felt a bit weird at school, bonded with the English teacher. I mean, maybe we all saw ourselves in her in some way. Yeah, and her love of reading and that escaping into imagination as well. I think I listened to it on a cassette tape. I used to love listening to it in an audio setting like that as well. Yeah, and I think that the character maybe does speak to younger women who are interested in things outside of, I don't know, maybe the classic traditional things that we're supposed to be into I know that with the 30th anniversary version they were like oh I wonder what Matilda would have grown up to be and I think they drew her I think Quentin Blake drew her as an astrophysicist a world traveler or an executive of the library and I don't know she was just such a geek and I think geeky girls really liked that but weirdly, I never felt like she was a geek. When you look back at it now, you, you are right. But reading was a really cool thing because Matilda did it. And sometimes when you're bookish, you don't always feel like that. But yeah, I didn't identify with her as being a nerd in any way. She was just really special. I know what you mean. And she was cool. And I think there's nothing cooler than the fact that she had those magical powers. And that, to me, was yeah an obsession. I think it's why we loved Harry Potter and why I did and why I loved Sabrina the Teenage Witch because I think when you're a teenage girl everyone annoys you, boys are being horrible to you so if you had a superpower you would be fine. <laughs> so magical tendencies aside I do feel like you have definitely got some Matilda in you because you absolutely love reading don't you? I love reading. I think I prefer books to most things, most people, most things in life. I think it's a place to hide if I'm being completely honest. The first thing I did during lockdown, the first lockdown, was just start a book club, talk about books, get all my favourite books off the bookshelf and just completely escape. So as much as I love them, I think it's almost just a bit of a place to distract myself, which I, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. And has that been something that you've always had from child sort of all the way through continued into adulthood, always had your nose in a book? Yes, always, always. And I think I just found it easier to communicate through reading and writing. So I actually look back over some kind of photos and memories recently, and it really triggered memories of how I struggled to express myself in words to people. And so I'd write letters to my mum and dad, to my sister and to my friends. And it's so sad looking back, or not sad, but it's just um, interesting when you realise how you were struggling as a kid and how that comes out like later in life and how you bury yourself in the same things as you get older. And so you often now, as much as you're reading for pleasure, you've got one eye on the lookout for your next book club read as well. Yes. And it's very informal. I have an Instagram page just called the hyphen book club and I just post on there if there's books that I'm loving. And I just feel so privileged and lucky to be sent proofs. And I'm sure you feel the same. You know, it is so wonderful to get sent books months and months before they've come out. Sometimes I just have to pinch myself that it's part of my job. And so I feel like it is my duty to share 
my favorite books now and again as well. It is funny that you talk about proofs and we're obviously we are going to talk about Olive later but Kate from HarperCollins if you are listening I owe Kate such a big thank you because I was pestering Kate for a proof of Olive I think so obviously it came out late June July I was asking Kate for a proof in December (laughs) and she sent one through to me as soon as she could but she must have been like gosh this is quite keen Um, but yeah being able to get books in advance is such a privilege and but it's so exciting as well. That is so lovely, though. And honestly, like it's going to be one of my memories of the book coming out is when you got a proof because, you know, when you're a debut author, you are looking out for who's got a proof, who's got a proof. So I was so grateful at your enthusiasm. It was amazing. We love Olive in this shop. I read it and waxed lyrical about it. And went, Sarah, you have to read this book, (laughs) which she then did. And it's, yeah, we've created a little Olive chain. So, yeah, all the love for Olive here. So what's the book that you've most recently read? So most recently, I have read a book called People Like Us, which is a nonfiction book by Hashi Mohammed. And I've got to say, I am obsessed with nonfiction. I've read so many memoirs over lockdown. And I don't know why I'm drawn to them. But I think especially during this time, I've just wanted to get inside people's heads, inside real people's heads and learn about their story and maybe it's a way of connecting in lieu of actually being in the pub with someone I'm not sure but been loving memoirs and this one is brilliant it's really hard hitting but just full of statistics as well if you want to learn something new it's a book about social mobility and inequality in Britain and how you can be successful even if you have no help and it's essentially about Hashi's journey from being nine years old and arriving in England as a child refugee from Somalia. And he's now one of London's top barristers. And it's basically a story of how you go from essentially having nothing to being in the most elite circle in your career in London. And it's just a really amazing story of how life was harder than it had to be for him. Life is harder for a for so many people and it just exposes what privilege is it exposes how much luck and talent and privilege can help us and really it just made me reflect on how many people in Britain have to work like 10 times harder than people like me basically and I'm really glad I, I read it. It does sound really fascinating and we're definitely noticing much more of an uptake from people's purchasing habits in the shop that would imply that people are really actively now trying to read outside of what they know or what their life experience is, which is really encouraging. And this sounds like a very good example of that. Yeah. And it's one of my favourite types of books where someone is unpicking their life layer by layer and really analysing it and For me, the book is really him trying to work out what it was about him that led to success. Because if you took a lot of people that maybe had his childhood, maybe they didn't end up where he was. Why, in what way did all of the recipe and mixture of who he is, how does that kind of lead to the choices you make? I mean, it's just a fascinating book and it's also really well done as an audio book. He's such a good speaker and communicator. 
And I mean, you mentioned there about really getting into nonfiction at the moment. I think that's also a pattern that we've noticed a little bit in lockdown as well, that sometimes, depending what stories people are feeling in the mood for, nonfiction it can actually be quite a refreshing, almost like a palate cleanse of something a bit different to try. But people sometimes absorb the facts and the research better than if they're not feeling up for a heavier story. Totally. And you know what? It's so interesting that you say that because I've gone into some fiction books recently and I've had to park them because certain things have triggered my imagination in a way that I'm not ready for at the moment. And I don't know whether it's because, you know, we're in a global pandemic. There's lots of scary things going on. And if we let our imagination go too far with certain things, you can very quickly feel like you're in a dystopian world as it is. So I I think there is something in that, that I just want to read a book that is based in reality, based on fact, and something I can just read about and then put to one side rather than enter a world and, um, I don't know, get a bit carried away with it. I don't know if that sounds a bit crazy. No, honestly, it makes total sense. I, I really understand what you're saying. You mentioned, obviously, yeah, we're in this pandemic and we're we're in lockdown and I feel like you haven't been able to go very far, but you've had a very busy lockdown because you've had two books published. So you've had a nonfiction, you've written nonfiction previously, but your latest nonfiction is called Sabotage, How to Silence Your Inner Critic and Get Out of Your Own Way. Can you tell me where the inspiration for this book came from? Yes, definitely. Just before I do, though, I've got to say it has been the weirdest year because I've actually launched three books this year because the multi-hyphen method came out in America in April. I was supposed to go over there and promote it. So it's been obviously very odd for everyone, but it is weird launching books from the same four walls. I really miss bookshops. I really miss events. But we're just kind of plugging on and also I've kind of enjoyed doing virtual things I've realized that it's not overly accessible for a lot of people to do just London book events anyway so um, I've learned a lot from it and I've loved it Um, but Sabotage yeah is a mini book it's only 20,000 words so people have been saying they've read it in a day or in an evening it's really very small but what I wanted to do is instead of writing like a self-help book that you know, they can be quite repetitive and they can be quite a lot to take on, especially if you're really busy. So I wanted to take all of the top, top things that I know and have learned about sabotage, all the things I've spoken to therapists about, just all of the key takeaways really to do with why we sabotage and how we can move on from perfectionism or procrastination or our inner critic or our fear of self-promotion and just give it to people in the most accessible, quick way, basically. What I really admire about your nonfiction work is that you are often the first person to put your hand up and say, this is me, I I do this. And I think it's really brave that you have kind of stepped out and said, I'm a self-saboteur at times. And there's often so much pressure to be perceived as everything's great, everything's perfect. Do you find it difficult showing that vulnerable side of yourself on a page and sharing those moments that you might consider to have flaws? It's funny because I think in my 20s, I was more into looking like my life was great. And in my 30s, I'm more interested in my life feeling genuinely great on the inside. So I think my 20s were interesting in many ways, and I'm proud of some of the things I did, but I was definitely that person like tweaking my LinkedIn page a bit too much whereas 
now in my 30s, I'm just a bit more chilled out. I'm more content. I kind of rate my success on how I'm feeling in the day or what I've done for others or how much of a good friend I've been rather than posting on Instagram my achievements. So I think it was easier for me to come out of my cave in sabotage and actually say, I feel this way too. And I think with the multi-hyphen method, it was very much, here are the tools, here's the practical stuff. But sabotage is more, okay, you've got the tools and you've got a Wi-Fi connection and you've got your laptop, but what's going on underneath the surface that's still stopping you? Absolutely. Because one of the things that I have found so interesting about self-sabotage is that sometimes we will sabotage things almost to ensure that they, they never happen. But other times things can actually be going really well. And then we'll still find a way of hitting the self-destruct button. I think particularly maybe in like relationships, you might have met someone, you think, oh, it's going, it's going really well. I really like this person. And then you go, right, it's time to release the demons. <laughs> and then afterwards you think, why did I do that? <laughs> yes, I know. And it was something that Brené Brown said in an interview that I quote in the book where she says that joy is the most vulnerable, scary emotion for humans not actually, you know, some of the darker emotions that we might think are more scary. No, it's actually our happiness that we're scared of sometimes. And I completely understand that. And so I think with sabotage, I just, I wanted to put it all down there. And I think for the reader, it's very much kind of have to diagnose yourself. But I found that just knowing the words for things or knowing why our brains do certain things helped me break my own patterns, really. Well, I really enjoyed it and I love that it's pocket-sized as well. It's one of those books that we are really advocating in the bookshop as being really good sort of gifty ideas and also stocking fillers. And like if you have friends that you would buy a little gift for, then this is perfect for that as well. So I think, yeah, really lovely and accessible and encouraging as well. Gives you tips and advice of how you can recognise what you're doing and question it and rectify it and sort of alter your path. So I thought it was, yeah, it was fantastic. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's that's definitely what I wanted is for it to be a bit of a warm hug. It's not someone saying you're ruining your own life and you're sabotaging everything. It's really not that for anyone listening. Um, it's definitely just saying we all do it. Um, we all resist the things that we want in life sometimes. And let's all be a bit kinder to ourselves. So I would love to hear about the book that has had a really big impact on your life. Can you tell me what it is that you've chosen and whether or not this was a an easy decision or you had to really go away and think about it? Some people agonise over it and some people really instantly go, no, I know exactly what it was. What have you gone with? Yeah, I knew exactly for this one. Just one of the ones that's up there for me. It's Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, who is most famous for Eat, Pray, Love. But this to me is my favourite book of hers. I talk about it all the time. So if someone's listening and rolling their eyes at me, I'm sorry. But I'm just such a huge fan of it. And I think the reason it's changed my life is because I read it about five years ago when it came out. I was still working at a magazine. I had really big dreams of being a writer and I was on the brink of quitting my job. And it just came to me. It's one of those books that comes to you at the right time. And I was ready to take it all in. And it's really a book about living beyond fear. And I mean, a lot of sabotage is heavily inspired by this book. And it's about realizing that your fear doesn't go away. So she doesn't really like the word fearless because she thinks, well, we're never fearless. The fear never disappears. We just have to learn to live with it. 
And I think it was just one of those moments of my life where I was like, oh, I'm always going to be scared and fearful. So it comes along for the ride. And she gives really good advice on how to let the fear be in the room with you, but just not drive the car. I, I think I'm ruining the analogy, but you, you get what I mean. I do. I absolutely, I understood that analogy. <laughs> and am I right in thinking the book is broken down into different sections as well? Yes, it's very, very colloquial, Liz Gilbert's voice. It's actually really written very simply as if she's just speaking to you. And I love books like that. I'm definitely someone that I like quite clean writing. I'm I'm not a massive fan of sentences I have to really unpick. I think maybe it just goes back to the fact that I like kind of straight up communication. And my favourite novels sometimes are ones that just get to the point. But it's a really great one for that because the audiobook is like she's just talking to you. And I reread the book every year because it's one of those books that just remind me of why I do this. It's very much a book about be, being creative. It's like such a privilege that we get to make things. And I think if you're getting caught up on book sales or your personal brand or like all these metrics, that book just reminds me, actually, it's about creating and what a joy that we get to do it. And also, I can imagine year on year, you've had obviously lots of different projects that have come out. So year on year, something different from that book will resonate than, than it did the previous year based on what you're doing or what project you've got going on at the time. So maybe when you were st- starting to write fiction and your first novel, and then when you were first starting the podcast, so different things would have jumped out at you. It's a bit of an eternal book for you in a way. <laughs> It is because I'm always scared of everything. Yeah, I was petrified before I started writing Olive, even though no one knew I was writing it because I wrote it in secret. But it's still scary to try something new. And you have that inner voice being like, who are you to try this? And I just thought, right, time to get big magic out again. And I listened to the audiobook, went on like a five hour walk and sat down at my desk and banged out thousands of words. Like it really is a bit of a medicine for me. And I really believe in reading books over and over again, if you love them. I'm definitely someone that goes back to classics that I love um, more so than always reading like the hot book that's out next year. Yeah, it sounds so inspiring. You've sold it to me. Yeah, definitely. If you're feeling stuck, you just need a bit of Liz Gilbert uh, sprinkling her confetti on you. And she's such a good speaker as well, isn't she? I've watched various TED Talks by her and she, she talks really eloquently. Yeah, I was going to mention, actually, the TED talk where she talks about how she had a bit of an existential crisis after writing Eat, Pray, Love. People were like, oh, you'll never write a bestseller again. I know that it's like tiny violin that you get paid millions of pounds that she's written a bestseller. But I really understood what she meant there. I think she was saying, I have the fear now of doing my follow up act to Eat, Pray, Love. And yeah, Big Magic is kind of like the TED talk um, in, in book version. So it's brilliant. Oh, amazing. Now, we've done a lot of mentioning of Olive, so I feel like we've got to bring her in now. So this is the book that we think everyone should read. It's your first novel as well. Can you give people a a very little, no spoilers, but a bit of a synopsis about what they can expect with Olive? Yes. So thank you so much for your support, first of all. Olive is my debut novel. It came out this year in July. It is about Olive, the central character who starts the book off having just broken up with her long-term boyfriend of nearly 10 years. She realises that they never really spoke about whether they wanted children. So they met when they were really young. Now they're in their 30s. 
And suddenly he says, now's the time to try for a baby. And she completely freaks out. So Olive is a story of someone grappling with knowing that she doesn't want children and how that changes her life. Basically, she has to change path and go and follow who she really is. And we meet her three best friends in the book who are all grappling with motherhood and all want to be mothers. So she, uh, yeah, she's feeling slightly on the edge, but at the end of the day, following her heart, really. And off the back of this book, it has sparked some really big conversations around women choosing to be child free. And you've subsequently been sort of invited to write quite a lot of column inches about it as well, various magazines, newspapers. Had you expected this level of reaction and interest to the subject? I didn't expect the reaction, but I did sort of think I was touching on something because I know that, and and this is obvious because I have written the columns about it, but I, I am a version of Olive. Olive is not me. She is so, so different to me. But at the very core of the novel is how I was feeling a few years ago, which was a bit alienated, a bit alone, feeling like I was a bit different to my friends. They were all getting really giddy and excited about the idea of having kids. And we'd be on group holidays and they'd be like, oh, isn't it going to be amazing when we go on these holidays and we've all got kids? And I just felt like this dark cloud over my head of like, oh God, I'm the weirdo that doesn't want to have children. And I don't know how to bring it up. I don't know if it's a big deal, not a big deal. I just had all these feelings floating around. So I got to channel that into Olive, which was great. And I think at the end of the day, if you're feeling a certain way and you feel alone, you you always really know at the end of the day when you start writing about it that you're, you're not. There's so many people that feel the same as you. So um, I had a feeling that I would get a reaction because I knew at the end of the day there were lots of Olives out there. And do you do you feel quite proud about that, that you're flying the flag a little bit for it in that it's it's allowed people to almost air it and have that sigh of relief and go and have that again, that moment of this is me as well. And this is what I identify with. I feel like it has really released so many maybe pent up conversations out into the open for, for a lot of people. It has been wonderful, actually, hearing from people. It's been one of the the nicest things of my career is just the connections you get. And I, I had it with the multi-hyphen method as well, just meeting people who are like you and feel the same as you about things. It is lovely. And I think ultimately that's why people write is to connect with people. And it's been lovely. And, and what's been so nice with Olive is it has not been them versus us. It's been mothers being so supportive and saying I read Olive that's so funny like I was her a few years ago and then you know obviously I changed my mind or people saying oh I'm the Cecily in the book or I'm the bee in the book and I love my friends who don't have kids and I don't know it's just like this story of female friendship at the end of the day more so than a story about motherhood and it's also been really nice hearing from mothers who are like oh I love the book because you know I want to go on two-week holidays without my kids and now I feel like I can and I don't have to feel guilty because you're opening up this conversation of like women are also more than just mothers. So it's been great. One of the things that I really liked in the book as well is how you've represented groups of, and also pairs of women. So you you have the main group of the four women, 
but they also operate in their own dynamics and pairs. And that, again, felt really true to life to me because you can be part of a group, but you'll also connect and bond and gravitate to different people within that group over certain things. And there's quite often times when Olive meets up individually and they also meet up as that group of four. And I, I really loved what you did with that. Oh, I love, I love that. Yeah, I definitely feel that that is a similar dynamic to me and my friends. And what I love about when you meet up just as a two is you can have maybe slightly different conversations than you can as a group. And there's like a bit of a magic in that and a bit of honesty in saying, oh, I, I can talk to you about this, but I might not say this in the group, which I think is part of friendship. Yeah, definitely. Do you think, would you ever do anything more with Olive or is she kind of, it's all nicely, neatly kind of connected or given the interest that's been sort of sparked around it, do you think she has any more to her story? Oh, that's such a lovely question. And I haven't actually been asked that. And it's just really flattering to even be asked it because for me, yeah, it is just a novel in itself and definitely thought just ended there. But I don't know. I really miss writing it and I kind of miss the characters and I think about them a lot, which is probably a bit strange, but they feel really real to me. So I think that's um, probably why lots of authors say never say never, really, because I could very easily pick up again on on them. And had you been thinking about Olive and that story in particular for a while when you were starting to think about writing fiction I was just wondering how the switch and thinking, you know, I want to go for fiction now, I want to go for a novel. Was that idea sitting there ready and thinking, yes, I'm going to hit the green light and go on this? Or did you have to sit down and go, what do I want to write about? And then it formed. So I knew I wanted to write about child free by choice women as a topic. And I actually, I thought maybe I could write a nonfiction book on it and maybe interview real women and tell their story and talk about it through my journalism. And then I realised there was so much meat on the bones and, and actually just so much emotion that I feel it would be perfect for the make-believe world where I could put in so many of the truths I feel, but I don't have to say, it is me, these are my thoughts. So I think I wanted to write about the topic in disguise, but then that's where the real truth comes out in the end. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we absolutely love it in the shop, myself and Sarah. And I've also given it to friends who have really resonated with it as well and really enjoyed it. And I do think it is very unique. We don't see very many stories and novels coming through where that main character is choosing to be child free and that that's very much at the forefront. So I think you've done an incredible job in putting that on the page and bringing that out to the masses is another thing to consider in in our lives oh thank you so much and hearing that you've given it to friends and things that's really been an amazing thing for me is I've actually had quite a few messages from people saying that they've reconnected with old friends who they fell out of touch with and to think that your book is bringing back two friends has blown my mind a bit and something that just feels incredibly special so Thank you for supporting the book. It's really meant a lot. So what is next for you? Have you got something in the pipeline? Will you be going back to nonfiction, fiction, a bit of both? I'm definitely in creator mode at the moment where I have so many things floating around and I'm trying to slot them into whether it would be a nonfiction or a fiction. I think I really love that I have both avenues and I don't really want to commit to just one. So who knows, but I have lots of topics floating around and I just need to find the perfect home for them, really. 
but there will be more. <laughs> and have you found, I mean, it's fantastic, you're currently in this really creative mood and it's all spilling out, but I'm imagining that that may not have always been the case during lockdown. And has it been a bit peaks and troughs at times with the creative flow in this weird environment that we're in? Oh yeah, totally. So lockdown one was just a bit of a barren wasteland for me in terms of ideas. I felt so uninspired. If anyone out there had no ideas and didn't write one word, I'm with you. I actually saw David Nichols had written a piece of the Telegraph saying he hadn't written anything in lockdown. It made me feel so much better because I just had nothing to give. And it made me realise that a lot of my ideas come from being in the pub with my friends or sitting in a cafe and overhearing a group of friends bitch about their other friends. I always get inspired by watching the world go by and just being inside my flat was not helping the, the flow. So I just let it go. I uh, didn't really do anything. Luckily, I was promoting the other books, so it was fine. But yeah, it's come back. The creative feeling has come back. I'm so glad because... It's literally my job to be creative. So thank goodness. And what does a good creative day look like, particularly from a writing perspective? Because people often love hearing about how writers, what their day looks like. So what now would be like a good day that you would sit back at the end of and go, yep, that's great. (laughs) Well, it's funny because I always I'm always asked about routine because I think people think, oh, she's written the multi hyphen method. Like she must know what the perfect routine is. And I never really was that person. I would just have my to-do list and my week would just be cut up in whatever way I would do it but now I've got my routine and maybe it's lockdown that's done that to me but I get up I go for a walk I just have to get out the house first thing now there's a coffee shop on the other side of the park I live next to a park which is lovely and I go and get my little takeaway coffee and then I think about all the things I want to write during that walk and I come back and sit at my desk and and try and get it down and that is that has been really really great and now I'm seeing the power in having a routine and something that I've always done is I would always have quite low expectations I really try and beat the expectation I put on myself because otherwise you can just fall into a trap of feeling like you're not getting anywhere so for me I put it down to 200 words is a success because I'll always beat 200 words or very rarely just do that you know so I think you have to lower your expectations for yourself and then you feel good at the end of the day. Well, I'm so pleased that you're in this creative streak and long may it continue. And I'm just, yeah, really looking forward to seeing what comes next for you in in 2021. Thank you so much. And you too. And I can't wait to come and come into the shop at some point and for everything to be uh, feeling good again. Yes, no, that would be brilliant. We'd love to have you. We'd love to see you. Emma, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us. Thank you.